This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. It's been 25 years since this song, Your Woman, was released by the so-called one-hit wonder known as White Town. Joti Mishra is the man behind White Town. He joins me now to talk about the song, mental health, and the power of music. Hi, Jody. Hello. So I always had so many questions about this song. I remember hearing it for the first time when it was first released. It was all over the radio station. Anytime I was in the car, I heard it, and I absolutely loved it. And I remember in college trying to search it down again in like a fit of nostalgia. I wanted to find it. And because I had so many questions about the song, I was I remember wondering, is this a man singing a song? Is it a woman singing a song? Is it a man singing from a woman's perspective? Because you had that filter on your voice. Break down what this song is about from your perspective. Well, first of all, I'm glad my evil plan worked to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to make you go, what the hell is this about? Well, it's it was written to be deliberately ambiguous. So over the years, people have said, what is that song actually about? And if I said, it's actually about this, I'd be lying. Because I know what it's about for me sometimes, depending what day it is and which way the wind's blowing. But it's not a constant thing. It's meant to be, it was written to be from multiple different viewpoints. And it was meant to be deliberately ambiguous. And the final thing was for me to sing as a man, the words, I could never be a woman. Because I knew people would just be like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> and I wanted to make it, I wanted to make a pop song that was really simple and catchy because of the amazing trumpet riff uh, from the Loose Stone Band with Nat Gellner playing the trumpet. But I also wanted to do something that would make the most of the riff, the catchiness, and to, to make it more difficult. So, you know, all my favourite pop bands, and nearly all alternative pop bands, you know, that often don't get as much regard as they should do, because they manage to be really, really catchy, but also there's always interesting things going on. I, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's again, this is not me, I'm not saying this is me because I'm not this good, but those bands, they're kind of like Pixar films where they have different levels. So you can watch it as the kid in the pop sense and really get it. But then when you watch it as an adult, it just makes you cry and leaves you gutted on the sidewalk. You're just kind of just like, oh God, why did, I, why did I watch that? And I think pop music at its best is like that. And I was trying to do that. I succeeded a little bit, but not as much as, you know, obviously all the songwriters that I love. So there's, there's so much that I want to unpack here. I mean, there's the gender thing. I understand that Marxism also played into the song a little bit. One of the perspectives is me basically uh, taking the view of an ex and singing about how horrible I am as a person. Uh, and as a boyfriend, and as a, a, an actual Marxist. How you, you you spout all this stuff, you say all this stuff, but yet how can you treat me like this? I mean, that's one of the layers of the song. So that's part of the, the reason I wrote it like that, but also it's because I think all pop lyrics, even though they may seem to be simple love songs, are inherently political. 
There's always an agenda going on there. And I think a perfect pop song does three things. It makes you think, it makes you dance, and it makes you sing along. But hey, one out of three isn't bad. You know, one or two out of three is most pop songs. When it's none out of three, <laughs> you're kind of like, well, why is this charting? Probably because a major label's throwing a bucket ton of money at it, you know, and made it go viral. I want to break down again how the song was created too. I mean, it starts again with this, with this sample of a trumpet. You know, you have filters on your voice. There's also a killer bass line. And I understand that the sample was kind of the first thing that you had to play with. So just talk about how you put this song together. Well, I found the sample, first of all, because when I was a kid, there was a series on BBC television called Pennies from Heaven. And it starred... Bob Hoskins, and it was an adult series, and I really wasn't meant to watch it. It must have been when I was like nine. I, I mean, I was too young to really get it, but I remember seeing it and liking the songs and thinking like, whoa, those are nice songs. And then years later, I mean, so many years later, I found a soundtrack CD uh, in a shop, and it was like, oh, that's that thing that I liked. Put it on. I didn't recognize any of the songs. I didn't remember them from before. But I kept going through and thinking like, these are all really, really catchy. These songs are amazing. The lyrics are brilliant. Why are they better than now? And this will have been like, this will have been like 93 or so, 90, 93, 94. You know, maybe a bit earlier, but not that much earlier than that. And um, I'm skipping through it, and I get to this track called My Woman by Lou Stone and, uh, and the Monsignor Quartet with Al Boley on vocals. And as soon as it starts, with a I'm just like, wow. As soon as I heard it, I thought, that is so catchy, I'm nicking that. I'm going to sample that. And it's called My Woman? Yes, it's My Woman. It's partially written by Bing Crosby. Oh, okay. I believe he wrote the lyrics. And it is one of the most misogynist lyrics you'll ever hear. <laughs> it's, it's a really, really, like, she's lying when she says I love you, a heart of, heart of stone, all these kind of, you know, traditional My Woman's a Liar, don't we know, good kind of a song. My woman, she has a heart of stone Not human, but she must be my own Till the day I die, I'll be loving my woman So partially, when I heard that, I was like, that's amazing. And also, the song was so like, oh, God. I was thinking, like, what would you do in reply to that? So obviously, part of your woman is, <clears throat> it's a very, very late reply song. It's a very, very, like, repost to that song. And trying to see things from another point of view. You know, this this bloke is singing about his woman, and then I'm singing, well, actually being a woman is being like this, experiencing this. And then the sample was so catchy, but so 1930s, that I was like, right, well, I need to mix this up. I can't just do like a 1930s pastiche. I can't just do that, because that would just be too obvious, and it would be a bit, I don't know, just a bit, no, I didn't want to do that. But I thought, right, I will design this song to be as, as nostalgic as possible, 
for as many decades as possible. So I took the 1932 and then an 80s VL tone for the breakdown in the middle before the bass line comes back in. Trying to wedge all this stuff and hoping that all these layers would accrete to make people confused and to take it out of its time and make it kind of, in the, in the purest sense of it, anachronistic. Not old-fashioned, but just not of any time. And I think it worked. Well, I remember being such a fan of it. And, you know, as we're talking about these different, like, ideas or genres or times clashing, whether that be you as a male singing from a woman's perspective or having, you know, the 30s clashed with the 80s versus the 70s. I mean, all these different ideas. When I also heard, I mean, you go by the name White Town, but you were born in India, raised in the UK. I'm curious where the, where the name White Town came from. So part of the thing I got from being uh, heavily indoctrinated as a loony lefty when I was a teenager by an evil Trotskyist party is this class-based and economics-based analysis of the reality around me. And that stays with you. I mean, it's a bit like Jesuits. If you get got by Jesuits when you're a kid, that's it, you're going to be Catholic forever. If you get got the right age by communists, and they're good communists and they, and they train you well and you're forced to read lots of books, you have that analysis forever. Now, even though I was born in India, I was raised in England because my parents were doctors and I come from a middle-class Asian background. We were raised in mainly white areas. There's lots of areas where there's lots of Indian immigrants. We didn't grow up in those areas because, well, I didn't grow up in those areas because we lived in the more white areas. So I always lived in the white towns. And I moved around all of England. Basically, I went to 10 schools before the age of 10. And my earliest memories of living in England are of systematic racism from kids at school and the teachers. My first memories are of teachers teaching white kids nurse, uh, racist nursery rhymes to, to sing to me when I was about, I don't know, four, three or four years old. Like the earliest like nursery stuff going on. And that pretty much carried on till 16 when I got over six foot and over 200 pounds. So... Kind of died off then, weirdly, a lot more. <laughs> um, when I first moved to Derby, there was uh, a bus stop I used to try and catch back home, and the bus driver wouldn't let me on the bus. Mm. And this is when I was like 12 or so. So this is 1977, 78. Not that long ago. I mean, it is, but it's not that long ago. And he'd say, no, no, you can't get on this bus. This isn't. This doesn't go to the packy areas. You need to go somewhere else. Oh. And I'd look in the bus and this sea of white faces would just turn the other way. Mm. And then I'd have to wait at the bus stop in the rain and hope the next bus driver wasn't quite as racist. And that was, you know, when people say, you know, what's why white town, it's partially that, my personal experience. But the more Marxist thing is, it doesn't matter if I lived in Derby or in Mumbai or in Kinshasa. 
in this world, every world is a white town because it's a world that's dominated by the, the political north. So you may think you have autonomy, but you don't. You can't have autonomy when 10 men's wealth doubled during a pandemic. You know, that's the top 10 richest men already. But wherever you are in the capitalist world, you're always oppressed. Even if you belong to the straight white male club, basically, if you have to rent yourself out in order not to die, and you're listening to me saying these words, you're working class. Everything else is just a, a smokescreen invented by capitalists. If you have to work to live, you're working class. If you own shares, if your father was a, a, a lord or something like that, fair dues, you're from a different class. But most of us have to rent ourselves out as wage slaves or we don't live. Mm. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So, I mean, your story is so fascinating. I mean, you, I mean, we're making this music basically in your bedroom, right? And then, yeah. and then this song, Your Woman, became an overnight sensation. How did it first take off? I've always DJed since I was a kid, and then I started doing it semi-professionally in my um, 20s. So I DJed with it, and I played it, and people really liked it. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is strange. But then we sent off a few copies, and a nighttime radio on DJ called Mark Radcliffe picked out of his pile and started playing it. And as soon as he started playing it, people went mad and said, you need to play that song again. So BBC Radio 1 picks you up. Uh, this song hit number one on the UK singles chart and also was climbing the charts here in the US. But I also understand it was becoming a crossover hit, like it was showing up on all these different genres and charts here in the US. And as it's climbing, you decided, I'm going to pull the single and then put my album out there instead. Talk about that decision. Well, I didn't understand then what the American radio market was like, the media market was like, because in, in Britain, we do have niche shows and we have niche programs, but we just don't have that landmass. We have the one time zone when, and everything is just much more connected, whereas everything in the US is streamed, first of all, by time zones, but also by genre very heavily. Like I'd, I mean, I knew urban radio existed, didn't really know what it was. In Britain, you have a radio station, and it may have, like, a rap music show on it. You don't have an entire separate station just for that. Well, I mean, we do now. We have, like, <laughs> we have now, so I'm lying. But, like, so I got these uh, figures back from the publisher, and they're saying, oh, you've crossed over into, you know, you're playing on the urban stations, you're played on the chart stations, you're played on the college radio stations, you're played on this. It's doing well, apart from country music stations. And I was like, oh, Wow. And then I was talking to my then manager at the time, and he very wisely said, like, you've just had this big hit in number one. How are you feeling about it? I was like, to be honest, I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> and, and he said, like, do you want to be number one in the US? And I was like, yeah, well, of course I do. Do I not want to be? Of course I do. And he's like going, well, the fame you've had so far, if you're number one in the US, times that by like five or ten. And I was thinking, like, yeah, that sounds horrible. <laughs> and, and I just thought, no. It was it was really weird because at the same time, Madonna had written to my lawyer and flown me over to LA to try and get signed to Maverick Publishing. Not the record label, I was with AMI, but 
for publishing. So things were cracking off in America, and I was thinking, you know, I'd made this record in my nine-foot-by-nine-foot bedroom, and then eight, nine months later, people are saying, maybe you should move to L.A., maybe you should move to New York. I'm like, what? I'm from Derby. I'm from this tiny, you know, little city. And I said, well, no, I don't. And he's like, are you sure about it? And I said, well, what can we do? He said, well, if we delete the single, we'll sell more of the album. But, you know, you'll lose out on having US number one. And that's a great thing to have. You'll be in the history books. And And I just remember thinking, like, I'm not enjoying this. I don't know if I want to be that famous. So that led to like the that's why because it, it was heading there, but that's why it didn't get to the morning in the U.S. Wow! So I mean, and what did that feel like for you again to become an overnight sensation with the song "Your Woman" um, under the name White Town? I understand that it didn't do well for your mental health. Yeah, that's the thing because you have the dreams. But a big part of it is just like, ah, it's just a silly fantasy. I'll keep being in this band doing this stuff because it's just fun. And I love being in a band and it's great fun. As if we'll ever make it. But part of you thinks, I hope we make it. But you also think it's never going to happen. So the overnight success part was after me working towards this since 1982. So it takes a long time to appear in the public eye. It appears from the public side that people just go boom and then disappear Behind that, I think, is a lot of work that people never see. I think it's like um, that one you see a duck and the little legs are going around the water. But on the top of it, it's just like quite serene. And then finally getting this thing that I wanted, that I'd been longing for since the age of 16, to finally have a, a recording contract. and But more than the money or anything like that, to actually have people being able to hear music I made, that is the, the wildest thing so I had this success, and it was what I'd been dreaming of all my life, and it just turned into a nightmare, basically, <laughs> overnight, like the success. It was pretty much, I got really, really depressed, I got very agoraphobic, I have eating issues, so I'm a very big comfort eater, and I put on loads of pandemic weight, and back then I put loads of staying in my house, not going out weight, because I was just, just scared to face the world. I started having panic attacks. And I'd lost my core thing, which was music. I, w- I remember trying to sit down and write something. And I remember thinking, oh, what would they like at EMI? And I'd never done that in my life. And again, I just freaked out a lot. I just thought, I need to work. I need to make money. I need to make as much money as possible because I won't have any money in the future. And also and just like... Walking down the street and all of a sudden everyone's recognizing you. Yeah, and not in a, not in a, I mean, some people are nice, obviously, but a lot of people are just like, oh, you just pressed a button. That's just electronic music. It's all easy, isn't it? You just press the button, it comes out. And which I, you know, I got fed up with after a while. I started saying, well, why, why haven't you pressed that button? Which people don't like when they hear that. <laughs> if it's that easy, how come you haven't done it? And then it was also the kind of thing of having visited America, it's, it's a different thing there. Success, a lot of people are quite supportive. It's kind of like, oh, go, well done. That's not a hugely English attitude, especially not a very big Derby attitude. It's kind of like, oh, but you think you're that bloke, don't you? But you think you, it's that more that kind of a thing. And especially, maybe people are grudgingly nice to you the week you're number one, 
Three months after you've been number one, a year after you've been number one, there's been no other hits. They're not so nice. Mm. You know, they're kind of like, oh, that's it then. Oh, didn't hear more from you. And they're kind of happy that you didn't succeed. Mm. You know, mental health is something that I understand you've struggled with on and on throughout your life. But I understand that music and the power of music has helped you in the past combat some of those issues. Talk about the power of music in your life. How mad do you want me to sound? I want you to sound like you. <laughs> <laughs> How much insane can you get? Because I don't want to offend anybody. Um, that isn't what I ever want to do. But like music for me is like religion for religious people. So it's very much that. I've had issues with depression all my life. It stems from bullying. I've had counselling and therapy about it on and off. I was first suicidal at the age of seven which isn't really normal for a tiny kid. When you're a child, you don't think you're a child, you just think you're you. But looking back now, I just kind of like, that's not right. But I remember really thinking, I just wanted to die, so I wouldn't have to go back to school again. Mm. And coincidentally, that was the same year as I became an atheist. It was overnight, it was the same thing. And maybe that was my last bit of hope going, who knows? But like... um I remember, you know, obviously, again, it's not really that normal for a seven-year-old to have a, an atheist uh, epiphany. But, but, like, I think it's that with music, and apart from my mum and dad, it's the only thing in my life that's never let me down. So I feel like it, like, devoutly religious people feel about their faith. Even when I haven't paid enough due and I haven't practised and I've just half-assed it and not done it properly music's always been there i mean again going back to the song your woman by your project white town you know again we're we're talking because that came out 25 years ago yeah you know again this song is kind of you're singing it but from a, a woman's perspective and you've also said that music or that songwriting is psychotherapy, but also in, in this kind of macho world we live in, gives men permission to be emotional, a very rare space for men to be emotional. Talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's changing now. I think it's changing now. I mean, when I'm out, because um, I managed to start clubbing again, when I'm out clubbing, the kids I meet there who are like Jenna Alphys, who are like 18 or whatever, they are a lot more open with their emotions than my generation. I'm 55, so my generation is very, very... Gen Xers, you know, we were latchkey kids, but we still have a lot of boomerish gender things going on because the boomers were our parents. It's that kind of thing where you feel like you're letting your masculinity down by showing your feelings. You feel that you shouldn't do that. Now, in my everyday life, I don't do that because of music. Because... The music has fed back into my normal day-to-day -day persona. So I've tried to feed back what music does to me onto me as a person. And for me, it's like when you're trying to express these things about emotions, there's only a few areas that traditionally men were allowed to do that in. And it's okay... I mean, think of like the early uh, Bobby Sox or crooners. So think of like a really young Bing or like a very, very young Frank or stuff like that. They're doing this thing where they get on stage and they're crooning to the microphone. It's a new technique because the microphone's got better. They get close and they, 
and they get intimate and they talk like this and they have this voice and like mm, baby and then that you've got like you've got like teenage girls swooning at this because a man is being emotionally open when are you going to get that in everyday life when is that for 1940 when was that permissible but it was okay in entertainment because it's another dimension it's not real We've been speaking with Jyoti Mishra of White Town. His single year woman has just turned 25 years old. Jyoti, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you very much for having me.
That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.